You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. It's good to see everyone this morning. We're continuing our look at the book of Ruth this morning. So if you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to the first chapter of Ruth. We're going to be looking at the final section in that first chapter. We're we're at verse 19, and we're going to be going from verse 19 down to verse 22. And the question I want to ask us today is, as we look at these few verses, it's just a very small section here. How long will you stay down on yourself? And even before we get into the details of this, is that a question that you've ever asked yourself? Or you're just saying, like, how long am I going to stay down on myself? Like, how long am I going to beat myself up? How long am I really going to stay in this dejected state? Well, you're going to see an example here in this portion of Scripture of somebody that obviously needed to wrestle with that same sort of question. And uh, again, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1, starting with verse 19. This is what it says, beginning with that verse. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity Upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together. And Lord, as we look at your word, as we think about the things that you've revealed to us in it, we pray that you'd help us to understand what we're reading. We pray that we would grow from it. We pray that we would learn from the examples of those who have come before us. And we pray, Lord, that even as we look at a portion of Scripture like this, that our minds and our hearts would be wrestling with how this portion of Scripture is ultimately seeking to point us to your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have salvation. So, Lord, we pray that you'd teach us your word now. We pray that you'd help us to understand it. And we pray, Lord, that the lessons that you have for us here would be things that that would really deeply impact our thinking and ultimately then impact our faith and impact our lives. So we thank you for all these things, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of you already know this, and for those of you that don't, I'll I'll just kind of mention this. But in addition to my pastoral ministry, uh, I carve out some time for several other side interests that over time, I used to think of as hobbies, and now the Lord's convinced me these are things that are part of my overall ministry or overall life mission. So they've kind of transitioned from being hobbies into being something that I actually see the Lord's hand in. So the things I'm speaking about specifically are, are opportunities that the Lord's created for me to learn more about things like writing or publishing or podcasting or entrepreneurship or online platform development, things of that nature. Used to see them as a hobby. Now I see them as a ministry. And so a year ago, I decided, you know, as I'm doing this and as I've been doing this for maybe about seven or eight years now, I've been pretty invested in some of those things. 
I felt led to just see if I could start maybe some sort of an online community that would be geared toward helping other ministry leaders and other business leaders uh, just to help them learn how some of these skills could help benefit their ministries or, or their businesses. And so on occasion, you probably even noticed that I post some things about that online. And this week was the culmination of something that I put in motion a bunch of months ago. I told that group that at some point in the fall, it was my desire to see if I could get some of them together face-to-face, because you have people in a variety of different places throughout the United States, throughout different countries even. And I said, let me see if I could figure out a way that I could get at least some of us together face-to-face. And so this week, for two days, I got a group of these folks together in Charlotte, North Carolina. Anyone familiar with Charlotte, North Carolina? thought it was interesting. I didn't really realize how close I was to South Carolina until I needed to get gas in my van. Uh, We were staying in Charlotte, and I went, and I crossed the border to get gas in my van. I was like, I'm getting gas in South Carolina, and we're staying in Charlotte, North Carolina. But it was neat. We got together some of these ministry leaders, some of these business leaders. We worked on some of the things that we're working on together. It was exhausting. It was exhilarating at the same time. I lost my voice a couple times. Um, But it was also very interesting to see who was there and also to hear a little bit about some of the life stories of some of the people that were in attendance. And I want to highlight one of them because one of the women in particular has recently gone through a very, very tough stretch. She's dealt with some major upheaval in her family. She dealt with a a drastic change in her work situation. She also dealt with the, the need to move to a brand new community. And in the time that I've known her, I've known her for a couple of years now, I've watched her personality change from somewhat, or like someone that I would consider very upbeat. You know, how you meet certain people, they're just like always up. They always seem like they're, they're cheering everybody on, very upbeat, someone who was very involved in the lives of others, to being someone who seemed all of a sudden very serious and somewhat absent. And she felt the need to kind of explain to everybody why that was taking place in her life, and And she said, you know, yeah, I've been somewhat absent for a season, but she said, in the midst of this, the Lord's been using the trials and the different things that I've been going through to foster a sense of renewal within me and a brand new perspective that I don't think that I had before. And she explained that while she was down and while she was discouraged, during that season, she didn't have a desire to really be around other people. She just kind of wanted to be by herself. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I absolutely have. Sometimes in my life, I could think of seasons where I felt really down and discouraged. And I remember going through one stretch of time where I felt like most of my free time was being spent in my basement because it was the quietest, least people-centered place that I could find. And uh, she said, yeah, I've kind of been going through a season like that. But she said, now I'm at a spot where I'm reinvesting in my walk with Jesus And he's been helping her bounce back from some of the trauma that she's experienced over the course of this past year. She explained to the group that she's plugged into a solid church in her community, that she's become committed to to forming relationships through the small group discipleship program of her local church. And she's been using the experiences that the Lord has given her to invest in an online ministry that my wife and I have now had the privilege to assist with And it's been wonderful to watch as the Lord's been orchestrating these things. I love hearing her story. I love seeing the things that the Lord's been doing in her life. I love seeing her devotion to Christ in the midst of the trauma and how she's bouncing back uh, from her experiences. And 
I think when I look at some of the things that she's dealing with, I would have to say that her story illustrates something that probably most, if not many, if not all of us will experience or face at some point in our lives. It's very likely that at some point during the course of your earthly journey, you're going to experience things that are going to make you feel discouraged and dejected. That is not new for us as people. That is not unique for us as people. And when that season comes, I just want to throw the question out today that we're wrestling with, how long do you plan to remain in that season of feeling dejected or discouraged? How long do you think you're going to remain in that? I think some people get stuck in those seasons long after it's time for them to emerge from them. And I think many people struggle to believe that there's a way out or that there's something better on the horizon when they're in the thick of something like that. And I bring that story up partly because it's fresh in my mind from the conversation that I had just the other day, but I also bring it up because I think that that's, I mean, it's basically the impression that I get that Naomi was basically dealing with that same sort of thing when you read this portion of Scripture from Ruth chapter 1. I think she was struggling to see beyond the season of discouragement that she was very much in. If you remember the background, we've looked at this over the past couple of weeks, you have Naomi at a spot where she was still mourning the death of her husband, and she was still mourning the death of her sons. But now she felt led to sojourn, and, or maybe I should say return from her sojourn, in Moab and come back to her homeland, which was in Bethlehem, in Judah. It had been more than a decade since she had lived among her people, but now she said, all right, you know, this is the time for me to return. She tried to discern what to do with the rest of her life, but the only thing that she was pretty certain of in that moment was that it was time for her to come back to her homeland. And so she does that. She makes plans and she starts to emerge back in, or return back to Bethlehem in Judah. And as Naomi returned to Bethlehem, and the scripture tells us that along with her was her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and Ruth at this point had promised to remain loyal to Naomi for the rest of her life, but we're told that as Naomi arrived in town, the whole town was stirred by Naomi's experience and by her reappearance. They're looking at her and they're thinking, oh my goodness, is that Naomi? It had been a very long time since they had seen her. And I'm sure many people in her life were convinced that they would never, ever see her again. Do you ever have one of those experiences where as you're interacting with somebody, you look at them and you think, you know what, I can't see logically how our path would ever cross again this side of heaven. And do you ever have one of those moments where you realize this is probably the last time on earth that I'm seeing this person? And I think a lot of those people that Naomi had grown up with and, and had known in her childhood and known in her early adulthood, I think that many of these people were convinced that they would never see her again. But here she was in Bethlehem, once again, friends of hers, women she likely grew up with, they were shocked to see her again. I think they were probably pretty happy to see her in one respect, but I also suspect that some of them were, were quite grieved as they really started to grasp the severity of Naomi's circumstances. So they're looking at some of the things that had taken place, why she had left Bethlehem in the first place to go to Moab, and now why she was returning more than a decade later. But when they had last seen her, the scripture tells us that she was happily married to Elimelech. The two of them were raising their sons, Malon and Chilion, together. And that's what life looked like for Naomi the last time these women had seen her. And now Naomi had returned, and she was without these men. She left Bethlehem with them. She's returning without them. She left a happily married wife and mother, 
and now she returned as a childless widow. And so the town was probably, I mean, the word the scripture uses here is that they were stirred. I think the town was probably so stirred because they didn't really know how to feel. Do you ever have an experience that really just causes you to have conflicting emotions? That in one perspective, you know, you you look at it and you say, all right, I'm kind of up here, but I'm also kind of down. They don't really know how to feel. On one hand, they're happy to see their friend. But on the other hand, they're grieved when they hear about the pain that Naomi had endured and was still enduring as she interacts with them and as they're, they're, they're interacting together. And it was very obvious that Naomi's pain was still very, very fresh in how she greeted the townspeople. They're looking at Naomi and they're essentially saying, Naomi, is it really you? You know, they're looking at her and they're thinking, all right, is it really you? We haven't seen you in all this time. Is it really you? And what does she tell them? She says, don't call me Naomi any longer. Don't call me that. I know that's what you used to call me. Don't call me that any longer. Call me Mara. Now, why did she say that? Why was that her response to the people? Is they're stirred? Is there, as some of them are probably really happy to see her, but also realizing that she's gone through a difficult stretch, she says, don't call me Naomi any longer. Call me Mara. You know what the name Naomi means? It means pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. So, I mean, you know, when I think of my life, and I think if I was to kind of carve out my life, if you said, hey, John, you're going to have a pleasant life, I would be like, that sounds great. Sign me up for that. I would like a pleasant life. And you could say in many respects, that's what Naomi, to a degree, had experienced for a season anyway. But she says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. You know what Mara means? It means bitter. She, says, don't, just, I, she, like, I, I, she was at a spot where she didn't even want someone to use her former name or her actual name, I guess you could say, because it just reminded her of a life that didn't feel like it was her life any longer. She's like, don't call me that. It's not really what what my life is like, and I don't think my life's going to improve anytime soon. I think this is the lot that I've been dealt, so just call me in accordance with the lot that I've been dealt. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi any longer. And it's also very clear when you look at what she says here that it, that that she was convinced that much of what she was dealing with was because God's hand of judgment was against her. So this calamity she was enduring was something she believed that God had brought into her life, and she was feeling kind of bitter about it. She wasn't super happy about it. So bitter, again, that she didn't like the sound of her own name. She's like, don't call me that. I don't feel pleasant any longer. I don't want to be reminded of my former season. Call me Mara. This is what my life is like now. I'm a bitter person I've been dealt a bitter hand, the Lord is against me, and things just aren't working out. And I have to admit, when I go through this portion of Scripture, what my daughter uh, has told me many times that this is the book, her middle name is Ruth, and so as a child she would read the book of Ruth over and over and over again. She once told me that this was the book of the Bible that she thinks that she has read the most. And I have to admit, sometimes when I go through this book, when I'm reading this book, when I get to this portion of the book, Sometimes I have a very hard time reading Naomi's words in this passage because the things that she's describing, these aren't theoretical fables. These aren't just like illustrations or, you know, like like fables that are just meant to teach some sort of a lesson. These are real things that happen to real people. And when you look at this and you say that, all right, this was her experience, this is what she, she dealt with, I feel sad when I think about what that was like. Because I get the impression in reading this book that Naomi was a wonderful woman. 
I get the impression that she was a very kind, thoughtful, others-centered type of person. And to think about the fact that these sorts of things had happened to somebody like that, it's very hard to just really think about that. It's hard for my mind to, to land on that and think about somebody as nice as Naomi going through all of this. And it also tugs at my heart when I think about her going through the process of trying to restart her life at an older age while her heart was still feeling such heavy things. She's, and just out of desperation, she's trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do next? You know, she had left Bethlehem to go to Moab because there was famine, and now a decade plus later, she's returning from Moab to Bethlehem, but she feels like her life has been wrecked. All the things that she had dreamed about, all the things that she thought would be the case, all the things that she thought she would one day experience, maybe that pleasant life that she thought that she would experience. She's like, no, it didn't turn out that way for me. I think God's hand is against me. I don't feel so pleasant. I feel bitter. In fact, I'd be fine if you just call me bitter. Just call me that, because that's how I feel. So let's just call it out loud. That's how I feel. Bitter. By the way, have you ever gone through a season of life that reminds you of the pain that Naomi was clearly experiencing? You ever gone through that? Where you just feel like, you know, I just don't have time for jokes. I don't have time for levity. I don't have time for, you know, just just the normal pleasantries of life. I don't have time for that right now, right? You know, how do you feel when you're in the midst of those low seasons? At times, I, I think it be, could be easy for us to just want to isolate ourselves. So maybe, you know, maybe when you were going through it, you, you thought, I just, want to, I just want to be apart from the attention of other people while I'm in the midst of, of my grief. Or maybe you felt very similar to how Naomi described her own heart feeling. Maybe you felt bitter. You know, maybe you looked at your situation and you thought, I think this is God's fault. Do you ever blame God for things? He takes a lot of blame. Do you ever just think about like what his day-to-day experience is like? He gets a lot of blame. I think it's interesting that when you look at the, the course of human history and you see how God created humanity perfect and how he created this world perfect, and he said, listen, go this direction, live this way, respond to me this way, and it's just going to be perfect and stay perfect. And then what did humanity do? We're like, how about we do the opposite? And then we do the opposite, and then we get the opposite results. And we're like, God, it's your fault. And he's like, um, actually, if you look back, and what, in the midst of our grief, do we want to hear that? We don't want to hear a theological treatise. We don't want to hear about Adam and Eve did. We think it's their fault too, right? We're like, Adam and Eve, annoying me, right? You know, we blame them. We blame God. It's always everybody else's fault. In the midst of our seasons of grief, in the midst of our seasons of bitterness, we tend to Blame God for our circumstances. And I think sometimes in the midst of those low seasons, what's the other thing we like to do? We like to, we like to question whether or not he's punishing us for something. Do you ever ask that question? Like, Lord, what did I do? Right? And by the way, we always present ourselves to God as if we're so innocent, right? <laughs> I've done that so many times. Like, what did I do, Lord? I just can't even imagine. You know, little old me, what did I do? You know, I was just going through life, being a blessing to everyone, never losing my temper, you know, even practicing portion control sometimes. But no, I have to deal with this. Are you punishing me for something? I think one of the things we struggle with in this world is kind of wrestling with God's nature and how he interacts with people. And then also, I think that translates into to us and our understanding of, of how love actually works. And we start wrestling with whether or not we are 
We are beings who are loved, or if our experience is something completely different. And I think we have a, I think we have a habit of confusing love for affection or infatuation. We start thinking about, all right, what, what's the nature of love? What does it look like to actually be loved? And we start thinking that love is affection or that love is infatuation. We often start thinking about love as something that's conditional in nature instead of recognizing that true love involves seeking what's best for someone else, even at great personal cost to yourself. And I imagine, and I'll show you where I'm going with this statement here in just a second, but I imagine it's possible that you have people in your life who primarily demonstrate a form of conditional love toward you that really isn't love at all. Some years ago, I started to realize that there are some people in my life who love me as long as I can do something for them. You ever kind of realize that there's some people in your life that you're great as long as you're useful, but then the second you stop being as useful or the second you can't serve them the way that they want you to serve them, what do they do? They're gone, right? They're gone. You know, either they come at you with arrows or they completely disappear from your life. And I remember some years ago realizing, boy, it feels like there's a lot of those conditional type relationships in my day-to-day life. And I wasn't super happy about it. Maybe, maybe you deal with the same exact thing. And if so, if you've dealt with that kind of conditional type of response or that, con- that kind of conditional love from some of the people in your life, has that ever had an impact on your perspective related to the love of God and the way He works in your life? Because so many people in your day-to-day life treat you with a conditional form of love. Do you ever start thinking that that's how God operates toward people? That everything is based on some set of conditions? That it's all conditional love? That it all has to be deserved? That it has to be earned? Sometimes I wonder, even when I look at Naomi's words and Naomi's experiences here, if that's kind of how she was perceiving God in that low moment. That she was treating God and thinking about God through a very conditional lens, because I think when you've been burned by the conditional love of people, people that you once trusted, I think it could become challenging to accept that the love of God does not operate like the conditional love of humanity tends to operate. I think in man's economy, this is how it works. I think in man's economy, we're primarily focused on work and reward, right? That's a very logical give and take. In man's economy, we're focused on work and reward. In the Lord's economy, he certainly rewards the faithful labors of his children, but his economy has another level to it, a higher level to it, that I think can sometimes be difficult for, our, for us to wrap our minds around. Because in God's economy, he delights to reward us for the work he did on our behalf. And I think that that's a hard thing for our minds to understand. The fact that in God's economy, he would reward me for work he did. Because in man's economy, how does it work? You're rewarded for the work you do. And I think a lot of people, that's one of their biggest hang-ups and their biggest struggles with God. We fail to recognize that the Lord desires and delights to reward us for work that He's done on our behalf. He shows us love when we were seemingly unlovable, and He graces us with blessings when we have nothing to offer Him in return. What can I offer God in return that he couldn't have had anyway? Nothing. There's nothing I could offer him that he couldn't have had a better version of anyway. And yet the Lord seems to delight to show love to the unlovable, to forgive the seemingly unforgivable. The greatest example of how this all works is the grace that the Father has shown us through his Son, Jesus Christ. 
When you look at what Scripture tells us that we had to offer God, Scripture describes what we had to offer God as filthy rags. And yet the Lord delighted to to shower us with the blessing of salvation. We rebelled against Him, and yet Jesus was nailed to a cross to pay for our rebellion and to pay for our continual running away from Him. When you look at the list of offenses that we had committed, our list of offenses was so long and it was so heinous that there was nothing that we could do to correct it. And yet in his love, Jesus wipes the list clean for all who trust in him so that we could stand before the Father clothed in the righteousness of the Son. We were under condemnation, so Jesus took our condemnation upon himself so that we could stand before the Lord, our judge, with no outstanding offense against us. And when I think about the reality of that, when I think about how the Lord operates in the lives of His children, all I can, say, I, I can look at that and I can say, all right, we don't deserve that, so praise God. Praise God that the kind of love that we are recipients of from God doesn't have to be a conditional thing, like so many of the people that you and I experience over the course of our lives, who love us as long as we're useful, but then the second you stop being useful, it's as if you become unlovable. And then we wrestle with that, and we start thinking, all right, maybe God thinks of me the same way. Maybe I'm only loved by God if I'm useful to God. And then the Lord looks at you, and He looks at me, and He says, no, here's the thing. There's nothing that you could have offered me that I couldn't have had a better version of anyway. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do work on your behalf, and then I'm going to reward you for the work that I've done. I'm going to send my son to live the life you couldn't live, and then I'm going to treat you as if you lived that life as you trust in him. I'm going to send my son to atone for your sin, and then I'm going to treat you like you never sinned. I'm going to send my, t- my son to wipe the slate clean, and I'm going to treat you like there was never anything on the, on the slate to begin with. That's how our Lord treats us, and that is so different from what our experience is life in this world, like in this world, and that's also, I think, at least in some respect, why Naomi might have been struggling to really wrap her head around how her circumstances were all going to work out. I'll tell you what, just yesterday I was scrolling social media, almost always a waste of time, right? Let's just confess that to each other. You know, we scroll social media. Do you ever scroll social media and then look at the clock and you're like, where did that hour go, Right? It's, it's like a brainless waste of time. So I'm going to confess to you, just yesterday, I was scrolling social media, wasting time, and I came across an account that I followed some time ago, at least a year ago, maybe more, but it's an account of a police department from the town where my mother grew up. And I remember why I followed that police department account. And the reason is because whoever manages their social media has a very weird sense of humor. And they have a lot of fun with what they post. Now, their community deals with a lot of crime, but here's the thing. If you get caught doing any sort of crime in that community, it's not going to work out super well because once that social media manager for that account gets a hold of the information of that crime and then finds any picture of you whatsoever on your social media It's going to be plastered all over the internet. And that's exactly what happened yesterday. Apparently, they just figured out, just yesterday, who may have been at fault for a local hit-and-run accident. So they made their discovery known this way. The post featured a picture of the local woman that they believe is guilty of this. And the text read as followed. Now, it showed her first and her last name. I'm not going to share her last name, but I will share her first name. It said... 
with her picture. It said, hey, Chelsea, want to call us about your red Ford Focus being involved in a hit and run so we could get your insurance information? <laughs> Thanks. And I, and I looked, and I don't know, I think it had almost 2,000 comments and 214 shares. 2,000 comments and 214 shares. So now every single person in that community and now me in this community and people far and wide, they know the first and the last name and the, the appearance of the woman who did this. They know a whole bunch of things about her. And, and I don't know, truthfully, when this all... And by the way, I, I also noticed that people had clicked on her profile photo and then left a whole bunch of comments on her profile photo saying, hey, Chelsea, you might need to call the cops. Hey, Chelsea, where are you hiding? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On one hand, comical. I guess that's one way to deal with crime, right? Certainly some peer pressure. Maybe we shouldn't be involved in hit-and-run accidents, right? Uh, but on the other side... I looked at that and I thought, I don't know if, if, let's say years from now, this all resolves, this is all old news, she makes amends for all of this and all of that goes on. I don't know how she could feel comfortable living in that community any longer with her name and reputation and everything having been disparaged in that kind of way, right? And so I look at that and I think, okay, well, here's the thing. Scripture tells us that there's going to come a day when every person is going to give an account of their life before God. Every single one of us. Does that make you feel awkward? You're like, Pastor, it's the start of the week. Can we not start it off awkward? Sorry, it's the truth, right? It's going to come a day when every person's going to give an account for their life to God. Every detail is going to be laid bare. Every single thing that's presently hidden is going to be unhidden. When that day comes, those who reject Jesus will experience eternal condemnation and separation from him. They will experience eternal separation from the presence of God forever. While those who trust in Jesus and have received his gift of forgiveness will be reminded in that moment that there is no condemnation in store for them. Nothing. No condemnation in store for them. They will be eternally welcomed into the presence and kingdom of their creator through Jesus Christ in whom they trust. Remember what it says in Romans 8.1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think that that's a wonderful thing for us to think about. And I wanted us to think about this in light of how Naomi was responding to her circumstances because There's also an additional reminder in Romans chapter 8 that I think is important for us to remember, particularly as we study the book of Ruth and learn more about Naomi's story in the opening chapter. Because when you look later in Romans chapter 8, it also tells us this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In Romans 8.28, it tells us that. So in that same chapter, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus But it also says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Do you think that would have been a a helpful couple of verses for Naomi to rest her mind and her heart on in the midst of this low season? Do you think that might be a helpful couple of verses for you to rest your heart and your mind on if you're going through a low season? 
There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And by the way, that's a theme we're going to see all throughout the rest of this book. It's a truth, by the way, that I think combats bitterness. It's also something I hope we'll all remember if we're going through a season when we feel down and discouraged and it feels like there is no end in sight. The Lord was, a, uh, was about to drastically turn Naomi's situation around. Her bitterness was going to be replaced with joy. Her sorrow was about to be replaced with singing. And a small hint of what the Lord was about to do to orchestrate a very dramatic turnaround, it can actually be seen in the very last verse of the first chapter of the book of Ruth. But it also is a verse that I think that if you're not fully familiar with the whole story of the book of Ruth, it would have been a very easy verse to skip over. Let me show you what it says. In Ruth 1.22, it says, so Naomi returned. So she's at this spot. She's calling herself Mara. She's calling herself bitter. It says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And then it says this, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So what? Right? As you're reading that, you're like, Pastor, are you just like making stuff up right now? Like, like what does a comment about barley harvesting have to do with this major turnaround that's going to occur in Naomi's life? Well, Naomi had now returned to her homeland, bringing Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law, with her. And in God's sovereignty, he had prompted her to return at the perfect time. I believe God was orchestrating all of this, and he was leading her and nudging her to return at the perfect time. By the way, when this was taking place, the time of the barley harvest, that on our calendar would be like April, May, somewhere in that period of time, April, May, right around there. And that's when they returned back to Bethlehem, right at the time when the barley was about to be harvested. And here's what's about to happen as we're about to read through the book together in the coming weeks. It was through a godly landowner with fields that needed harvesting that their story of gracious provision and redemption was about to continue. And we're going to see a very, very drastic picture of how the Lord changes circumstances around, but also gives us a glimpse of the redemption that he provides through his son, Jesus Christ. So let me say this. I don't know if you're feeling down and discouraged over something right now. I would suspect in a group this size that someone probably is. But I hope you'll remember the example Scripture gives us of God's love. And I hope you'll remember the example Scripture gives us of God's faithfulness to His people in the past, because I think it's instructive to us right now in the present. His love for you is no less than His love was for them. And if you keep watching, just as you're going to see as we work our way through this book, if you keep watching even in your own life, you're going to see that His plan for you was always orchestrated for His glory. It was always orchestrated for your best. And it was always being orchestrated for this world's redemption through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and for the fact that in the midst of all the things that we experience in this world, that we could look at you and we could say, all of this was meant for my good. 
that we could directly say that for you, that it was meant for my good. If we trust in you, if we have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, we can literally look at every circumstance we go through and we could testify with complete confidence that this was meant for our good. And likewise, Lord, we know that, that, that the things that we experience are meant for your glory. We also know, Lord, that you've revealed in your word that you have an overall plan for the redemption of humanity, for the redemption of creation. And all these things are working together. They connect. So, Lord, I'm so grateful for the fact that as we get to observe the story of Naomi and Ruth and those that were surrounding them, that we can look at these principles and think about these things and rest on the fact that this is true for them, too. As they knew you, as they walked with you, this is true of them. In your sovereignty, you were orchestrating things in their life that they didn't even realize you were orchestrating. You were doing things in their life that they had no idea you were doing. They thought that they were just basically, in some respects, chasing food or chasing shelter. But yet you had things all timed out. And their story, even though it looked desperate, it was all part of your redemptive plan for humanity. It was going to be through a lineage that gets created here or a lineage that gets extended, we can say, that your son Jesus Christ was going to come to this earth, that he was going to take on human flesh through this lineage that gets described throughout the course of this book. So, Lord, we're grateful for the fact that we get to witness this in its early stages as we finish up chapter 1, but as we work through the coming chapters, we get to watch this unfold. We get to watch what you do next, and we get to be reminded of the fact that you're orchestrating things that are far beyond our control and, far, and these things are far better than what we would come up with even if we tried to figure it out. That what we often refer to as a pleasant life is really a life that, that we think going through life without any sort of adversity, that's what we think is pleasant. But then we realize if we look at how things, things work long term, that going through life, having experienced adversity that strengthened our faith having experienced adversity that developed our trust in you, that that's actually much more pleasant than going through a life that never gets tested in any regard. So again, Lord, as we continue our study of this book, as we watch what you did in the lives of these women, that we would recognize that this is something that you're doing in our lives as well. As we trust in you, you are, you are orchestrating a plan that ultimately will bring you glory and be for our good. So thank you, Lord, for these reminders, and we pray, Lord, that, that if anyone right now is going through a stretch of time or a season when they just feel abnormally down, or maybe their circumstances feel like they're piling up, we pray, Lord, that, that there would be hope and some confidence that could be taken from a portion of Scripture like this that reminds us that you work all things out in your perfect timing and in your perfect way with the long view in mind. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your blessings. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. For more resources to help you in your walk with Christ, please visit DesireJesus.com. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for working everything out for my good. Help me trust in your perfect plan. Amen. Father, thank you for loving and caring for me. 
With Christian prayer meditation, you can pray along to prayers based on specific topics. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Christian prayer meditation. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com.